0: Welcome to the October edition of The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life details the journey to and sometimes from the CCO position. This month, I feature Bridget Abraham, the CCO at Remitly, who has one of the most unique journeys to the CCO chair that I've come across. It's a fascinating exploration of how to get to the CCO chair. In this episode two, Bridget moves into the consulting world and then into the financial services world where she begins to use tech solutions to data analytics problems.
1: The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
0: We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, then we'll be right back with Bridget Abram. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode in this month's series on The Compliance Life with Bridget Abraham. Bridget, first of all, welcome back.
1: Thank you. I'm happy to be back.
0: As you recall, when we ended episode one, you had, were at the end of your consulting career and going to move to financial institutions and really utilize many of the skills and talents you develop in the risk management and AML programs. So could you tell us about your roles at Citibank and what were some of the highlights for you, both professionally and in terms of expanding out your toolkit and resume?
1: Yeah, I was very excited to join Citibank. They were a client for a little bit, and then I joined them as an analyst. I don't even know if I can remember what my title was when I started there. It was a small group really running in the AML space. It was still a building time for a lot of financial institutions and where AML compliance is today. And while I was there, I started out really looking at the transaction monitoring space in the global organization around what should the basic standards be? What kind of typologies and activities should we look at? What kind of tools should we use? And so my job at the time when I first joined was really to start set that foundation for what kind of activity did we want to look for and how were we going to set it up and do it, not just in the US, but for such a large global institution and how would we do it consistently?
0: Did your background, both starting with your academic undergraduate degree and certainly your graduate degree, and then your work at the Fed really lend itself to looking at things from an analytical perspective as opposed to someone like myself who might look at it illegal from a legal or other perspective?
1: I think so. I like to think that my background in doing research and setting up the hypothesis and what you're looking for and how you use data and information to gather that research, to put it together, then to make a risk-based decision and how you quantify that. It has been a helpful tool for me as we've built programs. And as I've continued to get more and more senior, I very much rely on my legal partners to help advise me about where to go. But then I do think my background has helped translate that into those risk reward decisions. So we can make decisions and move forward and also be more aligned with the business and others to make sure it's integrated into the organization rather than a
0: back-office double-check that compliance can be sometimes. Was your work in transaction monitoring something that was new to Citibank, or were you building on processes, programs, and protocols that were already in place, but perhaps using greater or newer technologies?
1: It was a little bit of both. For the most part, they had monitoring tools, but very manual, disparate systems. And if you remember some of the issues at the time, there were a lot of issues with large global organizations like City, whose systems didn't talk to each other across the board. And so you may have an issue in one part of the world and you don't connect the dots with the activity that might be happening somewhere else. So it was a little bit of both. There were some pockets where we weren't doing appropriate monitoring. There were pockets where we were doing manual. And so we had to standardize and look for common themes across the organization and use new
0: tools and processes in order to do that. In terms of the new tools, were you did you have the opportunity to work with vendors or suppliers or even consulting companies to develop bespoke tools for city, or were you uh, had to go the other direction and really look for an off-the-shelf solution and then try to craft it to meet your needs and city's needs?
1: We we largely used vendor tools that we then tailored to cities need rather than building it homegrown.
0: And then what was it, or what I perceived, you're obviously female, but still perceive that city at that point in time was largely male or largely, I'm not sure what the right phrase would be. But I guess what I'm trying to find out was, did you have a mentor? Was there programs, formal or informal, that would help someone like yourself really to not only navigate City and expand your own repertoire, but to really mentor you in the corporate world? Yes. Most of my career up until later now
1: has been largely male-dominated. I was often the only female in the room in what we were working on. Yeah, that that continued to be true at that time. I was very lucky at City to have a really amazing mentor who I'm still very close to. She was somebody who was quite senior at City and helped me build my career, put me out in front, gave me advice, opportunity and coaching on what was done well, what wasn't done well. From there, also City had did end up having a formal mentoring program. So I had some other formal mentors in the organization and one in particular, he was incredibly helpful on helping me understand and manage and navigate the corporate world, particularly at such a complicated organization such as City. He gave me great tools and advice that I still use today On making connections, getting people to buy into your ideas and your thoughts rather than just telling them what to do, which can happen in compliance. And there were amazing lessons I learned there. It it was a a great experience for me.
0: What I just heard you describe is what I'm going to call soft skills. (laughs) And many of us are proficient academically, and many people are very technically competent, but many people struggle with the soft skills. And so having the ability to either have a mentor, a formal, Mentorship program, or just someone you could talk to, learn those skills that you just named. I find to be so critical, and it sounds like you had the opportunity to really learn from some very top-notch people.
1: Yeah, I did. I was very lucky in that, and that they took such care in my in me and my career.
0: From City, you moved, I believe, over to Western Union, mm-hmm. and one of the most ubiquitous names in American history. <laughs> but I, so, let me just ask this. I talked to several people who work at U.S. companies that have been in existence for 100 years or more, and there's a real pride in that. And the pride, they feel, is not only in the name, but that they, in 2020 or 2015 or 2010, they are the stewards of that name. And so they feel like they have to to not only live up to the name, but they have to have it grow for the next generation of employees. Was there that sort of esprit de corps at Western Union because it's such a part of Americana?
1: Absolutely. It, It was an actual conversation. You probably took the words right from their mouths that we had all the time, that we were so proud. And there was such an amazing history of that company, not always as a financial remittance company, right? They started inventor of the ticker tape and laying cables across the border, They're, That company had an amazing history. And there was a lot of conversations that we
0: are the steward here today, and we don't want to see it fall. And so you named some of the, the work Western Union currently does. How was the business of Western Union really different from Citibank and what challenges did it present to someone in your position?
1: I will say when I moved from Citi to Western Union, I thought it would be much simpler from a product (laughs) perspective coming from this very large, complicated global bank. And I was wrong. The payment space and probably the most global organization I've ever worked for was incredibly complex. The business is very different. You're connecting emergency funds to people around the world in instant and how they get that money, how they pick it up with this huge global network is incredible. And the pace and the complexity of making all those connections around the world and getting it to people in rural areas, cities, everywhere else in minutes and in seconds is incredibly complex and challenging. And the business there is very focused on maintaining that network as well as gathering customers. And it's a very, it's a much more granular focus than you have at some of the, in, the banking institutions where you're really talking much larger about large scale operations of, of larger bank transfers. They don't move as quickly and that Western Union things move a lot faster. They have to. And so there's a very different infrastructure for paying attention and how you want to build that business and what are the operations and the nuances there as well. And I would say there's also like a much deeper connection to your customer base. It's easy to get around people who need those for emergency funds and what they need them for and what they are. And so there's just, there's a, almost a more granular focus of focusing on the needs of those customers.
0: along the way. Bridget, at Western Union, you started off as vice president of global compliance programs and then moved to deputy chief compliance officer. How are those roles different than the roles you held at Citi?
1: They were probably much more broader in, in that organization, when I started there as with my role of programs, we, there was a compliance program in place, of course, but I think at that time there was a large focus on remittances and compliance and formal compliance and the robustness of it hadn't always been there for most of the industry. And so our focus was really to build up that program and create it from this basic program to a world-class organization program. There was also several settlements and issues going on, regulatory issues going on at the time. And so my job was a little different there that it was a much broader looking at how do we look at the whole program overall and really connect this on the globe? And then how are we going to uplift that program to meet the regulatory concerns that we have? And then as deputy compliance officer, it was really about managing the regions, managing multiple regulators around the globe, and how we proactively identify issues that they would be
0: interested in. The Western Union, I assume, was in all continents, perhaps with the exception of Antarctica. Were you required to travel in this role to different regions?
1: Yes, I did a lot of global travel around the globe, actually. I was pretty fortunate to be able to see a lot of the world in those roles. We met with partners. We would meet with regulatory bodies, and then we had, I had teams around the
0: world. Who's the primary regulator for Western Union in the United States? Sen, but they are really regulated by all the states. So you had both a federal and a state level regulations you had to work with?
1: Exactly. Plus all the international
0: regulators. Plus, I remember one of the stunning things for me when I moved in-house, I thought I was a recovering trial lawyer and I thought it's a one-to-one relationship in trial generally. But in the corporate world, I found it to be sometimes or some, a five and sometimes six level chess match. <laughs> exactly, because what you said, you, you had international, you had federal, you had state, you had internal corporate regulations, and then sometimes there were local municipal or some jurisdiction smaller than the state. So I found it incredibly complex. How do you begin to think through navigating, in your case, four to six levels of regulation? I think
1: one of the key things we would look for is what are the consistent standards that you see around the globe? We may, they may be articulated differently, but what are those core areas that everywhere around the world cares about? And in AML and financial crimes, and even now in consumer protection and some of those other areas, there are key core standard things everyone's looking for. You may call it something slightly different. It may have its own nuance, but you have many of those. And at that core is protecting our customers, is looking for bad guys, right? Whether they're doing money laundering or whatever they might be, and how do you do that? And so we would set these global standards about what we do, no matter what country we're in around the world, and then create tailored local addendums for those nuances that are either risk-driven or regulatory driven in each country. But rather than writing a bespoke program for everywhere around the world, which would be impossible to scale at a company that large and that complex, we really worked hard to create these global standards so we could say, no matter what, even if a country doesn't have this regulation, we do this. And that's to meet the risk or regulatory needs around the globe. And we based ourselves in things like FATF standards and things like that really were some of the foundation for some of these regulatory agencies. We would also spend a lot of time working with regulators around the world on when they're building new regulations and try to also bring some of that knowledge and expertise from what we know around the world to some of those, pro- those programs as well. So we would partner with them.
0: Bridget, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. I hope our listeners will join us for our next SEPA episode where you move into the CCO chair. But I was wondering before we go, if our listeners wanted to get any more information on yourself or any of the topics we've touched on, what would be the best way for them to do? Yeah,
1: please reach out to me through LinkedIn. I always reply to those messages and would be happy to connect.
0: Bridget, I look forward to continuing this conversation.
1: Thank you, Tommy, too.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you'll join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at Tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.